of insolence began with the outrage of Anani, when Philip IV, the grandson of St. Louis, sent his hoodlums to shake up the Pope and put him in his place and let him know that we, your children now, we take over. Now that was what called for the Bull Unam Sanctum. Now I will read the Bull Unam Sanctum. We published it recently in the House Labs, but I never get tired of reading that document. Now this is not a document saying that the Pope is an over a king of kings. That's a father saying that there are limits on all political power. There are moral and religious limits. And kings and nations can only disregard them to their own loss. The French have a wonderful saying, qui mange le pape en meurt. He who eats the pope dies of it. Now, Europe rose up in rebellion against the Pope. Look what they are being subjected to today, nation after nation after nation. What is the ultimate reason why communism is moving ahead? We have just thrown over the legitimate authority of the Pope to be the arbiter in matters of faith and morals of the actions of even nations and kings. When I was a child, I still remember, it's not too long ago, I'm not that old. <laughs> Half of Europe was ruled by Francis Joseph. I remember that. Francis Joseph. He had been emperor of the Roman Empire. Well, it wasn't the Roman Empire that was abolished by Napoleon. But Austria-Hungary kind of succeeded the Roman Empire, and it was in the same house that had run the Roman Empire since the 13th century, Habsburg. He came into... The, to the throne in 1848, and he was still going when I was a child. Francis Joseph, I never forget him. Nation after nation after nation was subject to him. They could tolerate charitably and compared to the kind of hatred that these popular communistic governments are showing and the kind of tyranny that's coming up very humanely. They tolerate differences of race and language, and even differences of religion. Once they had loyalty to the person of the emperor. That was civilization. That was still Christian civilization. That was the emperor who, to whom we owe the great St. Pius X. He didn't want Rampola because we don't want to make... The Veritas Radio Network is guaranteed the right to offend, annoy, agitate, shout heresy, and entertain. You start programming right now. Kind of like the cultural sewage served up on Bravo or CMT, only it's on 24 hours a day. Except Sundays. When the truth gets you angry and you throw your smartphone, remember, no one is forcing you to listen to the truth on the Veritas Radio Network. You can't handle the truth. You're doing that of your own. That's what makes this country great and any gay marriage pointless. That's offensive. So there isn't much you can do about it, Chowderhead. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Grab a book, take a vow, and conform your mind to reality. reality. 
Otherwise, you're just another Judas-inspired Karl Marx wannabe. And your children will steal your credit card number to buy tickets to the Miley Cyrus Twerkers Ball. I came in like a wrecking Are you ready? Let's get it on. On the Veritas Radio Network's Crusade. Welcome to the live Philosophia Perennis classroom and chat room. Hey, Mike. For tonight, hello, brother. Covering apologetics lecture number five tonight from Brother Francis Malou from the St. Benedict Center. Our instructor is Brother Andre Marie, who we just heard pop in via the Dude Maker Skype line. Also, uh, we are live in our chat room at my website at mikechurch.com, which you can get to from the front page of the site by clicking on the last episode, uh, episode number four, or lecture number four, which was just uploaded today. And there is a link in there to get to the homepage, which has the chat room on the homepage embedded in it. So uh, join the uh, the chat. It is live and happening, and uh, come prepare with your questions. Hopefully you have listened to lecture number five and uh, are all ready to go. We'll turn it over now to, to Brother Andre. And, uh, Brother, you and I talked a little bit about lecture number five uh, this morning on my show, and we, um, uh, we, we covered some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight. I just re-listened to part about King Philip I of France. So um, there's a lot to talk about here on this episode of Apologetics. So where do you want to start? Okay, so uh, we're, we're at Lecture 5, um, and Brother starts off by saying that there are many, many, many books that are written on the subject of apologetics. Numerous uh, volumes, you know, uh, possibly libraries of volumes have been written on on the subject of apologetics. And he says that he doesn't think that that's the way that most people are going to um, enter enter the church, because uh, for most people, they 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 hear a certain amount of arguments and then they simply assent to, to the faith They that. For the most part, 
reading books of apologetics is not what's going to um, get most people into the church. And he he knew that from his own experience. I mean, he <laughs> he read the lives of the saints, and that's what it, that's what made him a Catholic. This was after a life of complete rationalism. Um, he read the lives of two saints, and he was convinced and wanted to become a Catholic. Now, you do have your rare bird who who sort of, as they say, reads himself into the church. God's grace can can work on all sorts of things. Some people are attracted from Catholicism's abstract truth. Some people are attracted to its goodness, and like what I said about reading the saints. Some are attracted to beauty, and they, they see the liturgy and so forth, and, and, and Catholic monuments of art and culture, and, and they're drawn to it because of that. Grace has many different avenues from which it can, can, can grab somebody. But when what Brother's talking about with the apologetics is that we should know some of the principal arguments, and and therefore, um, what he's covering in this whole series are some of the major objections that people make to the faith. And tonight, it's really all about the subject of, is the Catholic faith something that's bad for, for uh, progress and goodness in the natural order, uh, specifically in the realm of church and state? That's that's the basis. That that's where he's coming from. Um, and actually, before before he gets into that, he he pursues the angle of wisdom. You remember that little little discourse he made about wisdom, just the notion of wisdom. Yes. So what what that's all about is um, he said, you know, you're, you're going to have people who will disagree with you about the need for religion. They'll disagree with you about the existence of God. They'll disagree with you about, um, you know, organized religion being a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but what most people will um, value is the idea of wisdom, that most people will think that wisdom is a good thing, and that it's something that is to be pursued. It's something of a universal value. And anybody, and, and what, what Brother says is ultimately anybody who's seeking his own salvation and also seeking the salvation of, of others, seeking to bring others to salvation, that person is seeking wisdom. So um, if you can talk in this language of pursuing wisdom, um, this is something that some people even today, even to, to this day, people value to some degree. And brother, brother says, you know, th this is what Scripture is all about. He said that the concept of wisdom is all over Scripture, um, including the Old Testament. He thinks it's spoken of more than any other idea. Um, and he, he hearkens to Moses saying, after Moses has gotten all the revelations from God, um, that, and he reveals the, 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 the law to the people, he says, this is your wisdom before the nations. Um, he also quoted a couple of other p things from Scripture. All wisdom is from the Lord, and um, there are seven books of wisdom in Scripture in the Old Testament that go by the name of books of wisdom. And Brother rattled off the the names of all seven. Um, they're they're all in the Protestant Bible except two. Uh, I think the Book of Wisdom and the Book of uh, Ecclesiasticus are not in the say the King James version. Um, he calls wisdom the science of salvation. And um, he says that wisdom is also, it's a knowledge of the most important truths, 
um, but it's also a knowledge that's accompanied by a will to live accordingly. Um, and, <laughs> oh yeah, it's better than gold and it's more powerful than armies. These are two quotes from the Old Testament. And he says, we don't, we don't detract from gold and we don't detract from the need for armies. Both of them <laughs> have value. Uh, so when scripture is saying that it's better than gold and it's more powerful than armies, he's, he's, uh, it's saying something significant. So we have to appreciate that. Um, and, and ultimately for the person who's pursuing wisdom, there has to be a response to grace for him to, to, to accept the faith. This is the, the, Brother Francis wants to emphasize to his audience that you're, you're never going to bring somebody into the faith by a QED. You're never going to bring somebody into the faith by saying, um, the Catholic Church is true because of this, that, and the other thing. It's easily provable. See, anyone can see it as if you're proving the Pythagorean theorem or as if you're, you're, you're proving some um, axiom of um, geometry. It's not that way. It, that's not how it works. You can refute errors. You can argue for the truth. But you're never going to show somebody, uh, there always has to be room, as Brother Francis has said numerous times now, for the will. There always has to be room for the heart. God makes it so that we have to want to make the act of faith. We have to want to believe the truth. We have to pursue it uh, in order to attain this, this supernatural wisdom. And, and with that as sort of the prelude, uh, this thing about you know the, the the necessity of pursuing wisdom for the person who gets the faith, and the the necessity of not thinking you can prove every single thing just as you can prove the truths of of, of mathematics or 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 uh, geometry. He goes into the fact that yeah, people have objections to the Catholic faith. Some of those objections are reasons. Meaning, you know, a, an actual reasoned argument. I don't believe in the Catholic faith because I think that the concept of the Trinity, one God and three divine persons, is uh, is 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 intellectually incoherent. It makes no sense. It's, it says one equals three and three equals one. Okay, that's a reason. However poorly or, or well articulated it is, it's a reason. But he says that other people just have motives, and oftentimes it's something sentimental. You know, well, you know, my family were were all. Uh, Presbyterian, and I don't want to offend my grandparents, you know. Uh, yeah, Catholic, the Catholicism looks like it's got some valid claims, but you know, this this could cause trouble in the family if I if I go this direction. It does That's cause trouble a, in families. What's that? It can cause trouble in families. Oh, you bet, you bet. And I mean, let let's not forget. Let's not. I mean, that there really is no room for sentimentality here. Um, our Lord did say that he came not to bring peace, to, but to bring a sword. Uh, now, he, he also said elsewhere that he, he, he gives peace that the world cannot give. But when he says about he brought, came to bring the sword and not peace, he said he was coming to set uh, husband against wife and, and brother against brother and, and so forth. He, he said you know, his truth is going to break up families. Now, now, Christ isn't the eternal homewrecker. I mean, he didn't, he didn't come into our time to break up families. But that the reaction is, even though it seems like he's saying that when he says, uh, "I will set brother against brother" and so forth, he doesn't come for that purpose. But the effects of the fall and human human uh, ignorance and malice is going to have the effect that when somebody accepts Christ's truth, 
If another person doesn't, de facto, those two are set against each other now. So uh, we, we have to realize, although people who try to be living a devout life, a holy life, try to acquire virtues. We want to be kind. We want to be meek. Uh, we, we don't want to be uh, easily aroused to anger and, and engage in needless controversies and, and, and you know, sort of sophomoric name calling and becoming unnecessarily um, violent or angry. Still, there is going to be necessarily, there is going to be conflict in matters of religion. You cannot read the history of the church and not realize that that conflict is inevitable uh, as soon as you talk about truth versus error. As soon as you talk about the objective nature of truth, the objective nature of moral standards, conflict is, is, is going to be a given. So yeah, it will affect families, and that's a great cross for somebody to carry, but uh, it will definitely affect them. Um, so so brother, brother then goes into this thing about church and state, and he talks about how um, Italian Freemasonry, you know, during the time of um, um, Garibaldi and uh, Mazzini and the other Italian revolutionaries in in the 19th century, the mid, the mid 19th century, uh, these guys wanted to unify Italy, keeping in mind that there had never been a unified Italy. There was never a politically unified Italy, uh, except when Italy was unified under the hegemony of the of the empire. Other than that, there was never a unified Italy. So the the Italian Freemasons said, "Well, we've got to unite the whole boot," you know. Um, so from you know from Milan and its neighborhoods up in up in the north, all all the way down to to you know Sicily, you know, which is which is uh, uh, off the boot, um, the the entire thing, everything, Napoli, everything, and of course in the middle of that was what was for them the unfortunate reality of the papal states which which hogged up a chunk of uh, of the of the italian peninsula and cut northern italy off from southern italy if you look at if you look at the other italian states as a as a as a political unity which they, they weren't even yet but in order to achieve that political unity they had to steal the papal states and this is what happened in 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 the italian revolution and pius the ninth ends up being the ultimate loser of this battle and all of the former papal states become uh the nation of italy okay years later the bad blood is somewhat ameliorated uh, in the Lateran Accords that happened in 19, was it 29 or 30 between Pius XI and Mussolini. But, um, but, so, but the modern Italian state is this Masonic creation of the mid-19th century. Why is this an issue? Why does this come up in our apologetics course? Because these guys are saying the church is bad for Italy. You know, they were hyper-nationalists. They held up Italian, your identity as an Italian much higher than your identity as a uh, as a Christian or as a Catholic. So um, this was one example that Brother Francis pointed to of people who said the church is simply bad for the for the state. It's simply bad for the for the civil governance of society, and it and it's it's holding back progress. So in order to in order to show that there's a difficulty, in order to show that that that's not correct, that that's not accurate. Brother gave a, a series of examples of the, the, uh, the, the papacy's quote-unquote interference 
in the life of nations, <laughs> not so much qua nations, but in the life of the of the leadership of the nation, in the person of the king. Mike, were you trying to say something? No, I was going to. This is where uh, Philip the first comes in. Yeah. Are, am I breaking up? Because you're breaking up to me. No, but I can hear my uh, I can hear myself talking back through your headphones. Oh, I don't have headphones. Oh, you must be on a speaker then. Okay, it's yeah, gone. it's gone. But, but it is never a problem on Skype. Yeah, no, it's gone. Okay, uh, no, okay. I, I, uh, you're not breaking up. You sound loud and clear. We're all good. Okay, okay, all right, so, good. So, so we're still in uh, lecture number five of uh, apologetics here on the Crusade Channel, featuring King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers here with Brother Andre Marie uh, from the Saint Benedict Center. And uh, just about 45 minutes or so, we will debut episode number 116 of Reconquest Radio. Brother will tell you a little bit about that later on. No, I was going to say, uh, before you went on to the, to the, uh, the, first, uh, the first of the king, uh, the conflicts that Brother was talking about, I was trying to butt in earlier when you said that Brother talked for a little while about wisdom. Uh, because he gave a definition of it that was different from the most perfect things, about the most perfect topics, about the most perfect... His definition had to do with salvation, and um, I thought that that was a signal moment in the lecture. Yeah, brother had multiple definitions of wisdom. Um, his his most favorite is the one that I, I think I still have it as my uh, my little Skype message uh, that I keep up on Skype. But it's that wisdom is the most perfect. Uh, it, it, the most perfect knowledge of the most important truths in the right order of emphasis, accompanied by a permanent total uh commitment to live accordingly <laughs> that's it <laughs> that that's his definition i don't know if i have it as my skype thing anymore but uh um the 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 um he gave but he gives other definitions in this lecture he says it's the science of salvation um it, it, he also calls it uh yeah the, the science of salvation and and um then he gave a modified version a shorter version of the one that I, I that I just gave the long version of. So he had a lot of different definitions of it, but um, he also says wisdom is order. It's putting first things first. <laughs> so uh, all of these definitions of wisdom are the kind of things you can you can relish and try to uh, apply in your life. But when 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 brother brings up, can, can we go to Philip now? Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. I just I thought the definition was because uh, I hadn't heard that one before. And I, I tried to commit it to memory, and I didn't do a very good job. I knew it had to do something with salvation, so I uh, I thought others may want to, to to go over that as well. No, please proceed to Philip. Okay, so so the, the the we can we can focus on the person who's sort of in the middle of these um, kings chronologically, and that's the person of Saint Louis the Ninth, the 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 King of France, the Great Crusader. Um, he, he was, he was a knight, he was a crusader, he was a saint, he was a great statesman, he was even a great diplomat, and he was a missionary. Uh, uh he spent, he wanted to evangelize the Muslims. It, it wasn't just that he wanted to meet them in the field of combat, he actually wanted to evangelize them. Um, so this is a man of tremendous virtue, um, of, of, of amazing patience. Uh, everything went wrong for him. I mean, uh, uh, he's compared with, he's contrasted with his cousin, Philip III of Spain. Okay. Philip Philip III and Louis were cousins because Louis's mother, remember, was a Spaniard, Blanche of Castile. And um, so 
so uh, Ferdinand, Dom Guerranger points this out. For Saint Ferdinand, everything went well. I mean, he 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 advanced the Re- Reconquista in Spain very far. Ultimately, yeah, it, it wasn't finished for another um, th- three hundred or so years, two hundred years um, when Philip and uh, Ferdinand and uh, Isabella finish it. But he had advanced it quite a bit. Um, and he went from strength to strength, and, and his reign was glorious. Louis had setback after setback after setback. It was really, his, his life was tragic, but um, he was a great saint. So ultimately, that's what's called a comedy, not a tragedy, because it ended happily. Now, he had a great-grandfather and a grandson okay. whose stories are similar, and Brother Francis paralleled them. At the time of for, of, uh, of his great grandfather, his great grandfather was was Francis the first, and his and Louis's grandson was uh, Francis the fourth. So a lot had happened b- between these times, and and the, the 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 notion of modern the modern state is is rearing its ugly head. It's beginning at this time. Oh God! But but back in the in the eleventh um, century. When um, Philip I was on the throne of France, Philip decided that he was going to jettison his wife, whom whom he he had apparently uh, fallen out of love with, fallen out of love with, um, and determined that he was going to take up with this other woman that he liked more. So you know he committed adultery, and he didn't just commit adultery; it was uh, it was a constant state. He lived with this woman. She was his paramour. It was known. It was it was a public scandal. My, how Henry VIII of him. Yes, exactly. Yeah, monarchs were not, you know, th- these things happened. Now, a, a lot of them, including several of the French monarchs, they had secret mistresses who were sort of open secrets. <laughs> but in, in this case, there was nothing there was nothing secret about it. It was brazen. And they'd walk into church, and they'd walk, you know, it, it, they'd be in public court functions. And he had he had exiled his wife; he had sent his wife away. So, th- this was a tremendous scandal to Christians. I mean, nowadays, as Brother Francis kept saying, he says, "Now we we kill millions of babies a year, and we don't bat an eye." So, our concept of scandal is a little bit different than it was in the 11th century. I'll say, but it, but in the 11th century, for a Christian monarch. To be living in open uh, adultery, in open concubinage with a woman who's not his wife, when he has a wife, that was a tremendous scandal. And uh, because he was the father of Christendom, the Pope had an interest in this. And uh, he ended up rebuking—and and the Pope of the day was no slouch. He was not a wimp. He was not a, 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 an accommodating person, and he wasn't a man riddled with his own personal vices, like say an Alexander the Sixth or somebody like that. It was Blessed Urban the Second, who's the guy who held the who's the Pope who held the Council of Claremont, and who preached the First Crusade. Um, so this is not a bad Pope. This is a good Pope, and so he he put. Louis under he put he put Louis under uh, I believe it was under interdict. He either interdicted him or excommunicated him. No, no, he excommunicated. He, he excommunicated him vitandus. Uh, there used to be different gradations of excommunication, and he excommunicated him vitandus, which means this man is to be avoided. 
um, he cannot be allowed into church. He cannot be allowed into sacred functions. Uh, So what would literally happen is when, when Philip the first and his, and his uh, adulterous paramour would walk into a church or just he himself would walk into a church. The ceremonies had to stop when he would walk into a town they could no longer ring the church bells. Wow. Yeah, the, the, it was serious. Excommunication, Vitandus, was serious. And again, it's a vindictive punishment in the sense that it's it's punishing them to exact justice for crimes that they did, but it's also a, 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 to heal. The purpose is to heal the malefactor so that he understands the, the, the seriousness of the sin. And of course, when you're talking about the, the person of a political leader, when and, and we have to realize in, in, there was a concept of Christian statehood. These were not pluralists. These people didn't think pluralism was an, was an idea. They didn't know what it was, much less think it was an ideal. They would have laughed at us for this, this um, deification of pluralism that we have in our society. That doesn't seem to be working out too well for us, by the way. But in, in, in uh, this Christian society, to be a citizen of the state, you had to be baptized. This is just the way that they saw it. Ever since the time of Theodosius the Great, uh, who was the first Roman emperor to make Catholicism the official religion of the empire, to be a Roman meant you were baptized. So at the same time that you became a member of the mystical body of Christ, you became a Roman citizen. This is how they saw it. That idea carried over into Christian statecraft in, in the, in the, after the rise of the modern nations, after all those barbarian invasions happened in the 5th century. Okay. So the modern nations of you know France and Spain and Portugal and, and so forth, they thought of their national identity was completely wrapped up in in Catholicism. So if you were baptized, well, yeah, you remember you were part of the not only of the mystical body of the church, but of the social organism of the of the state, and you were subject to the Christian king of that realm. So that's why that's why it was so serious that when Philip goes shows up to a town, it's like you know the record stops. You know, all the bells stop. Uh, uh, there couldn't be proce- processions; couldn't happen in front of him. All religious functions stopped in his presence, and which which had the effect of driving him away. And because of this outlook on on the Christian, the the, the citizen of the state or the subject rather of the monarch, uh, being somebody who is baptized, so too the monarch himself ruled by the authority of God. Therefore, he took off his his royal insignia. It was a very weird state of affairs. He never wore his crown. He didn't wear any of the royal insignia, any any of the things that said, I'm king. He didn't wear. Yet he was still the king. He was still acknowledged as the king. He was still treated as the king. Now, the pope could have used his office to dissolve the, the, uh, uh, the obligation of the French people to be obedient to him as their monarch. He didn't do that. Pius V did that with the English, with, with uh, Elizabeth I, you may recall. Right. But, but uh, Urban II didn't because he wanted the man to be reformed. He didn't want, 
he didn't want to be a kingmaker, literally, <laughs> and replace the one king with another. So he's so he kept trying to work with them. Now it took years, but eventually Philip uh, set aside this mistress, reconciled with the church, started living a sacramental life again. Then he could don the crown and all that, and things were happier in the realm. And literally, the church bells would ring. Right. So this is a this is a joyous thing, and a bad situation, a scandal was was uh, remedied. Now, that's Philip I, and that's when there was a certain amount of prestige and you had a pope that was prestigious. It didn't hurt the body politic. When you, when you, I think we, I think we know from the social unrest that we're experiencing now, I think we know that good morals and good moral guidance and, and a stern correctives to public scandals don't hurt the body politic. But we do know that bad morals hurt the body politic. We do know that if you raise children badly and teach them bad morals and teach them laziness and teach them uh, to be impure, we do know that bad things will happen, okay? You know, like school shootings and rapes, okay? Like Hollywood. <laughs> um, Weinstein happens, right? Weinstein happens, yeah, and 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 all of the other mini Weinstein's that 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 are that are being exposed. Um, all these things happen when you, when public morals are bad. I mean, so uh, this was nowadays. People say, well, why don't the bishops fix this? Why don't they correct these politicians? Well, if they attempted to correct politicians today, these politicians would laugh. Imagine if Nancy Pelosi's bishop said to her, I'm going to excommunicate you. <laughs> First of all, she'd probably have to have him explain what excommunicate means. But <laughs> um, but then she'd just laugh and say, what are you kidding? I mean, what are you kidding? <laughs> you can still do that? You, 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 don't, have, you don't have that power. <clears throat> yeah, and then she'd brag about the Catholic girls' school that she went to and how it turned her into a feminist and all this stuff. Um, so the, the, the moral, the moral authority of the church in these matters doesn't exist anymore. And yeah, there are causes there that we don't need to get into. It's the fault of the, of the clergy, ultimately, especially the higher clergy. But at this time, there was a prestige in Christendom still to the authority of the papacy. And, and there was a remedy. It worked. There was a happy ending, so to speak. And it did nothing to detract from public morals. France under under at this time was prosperous it was cultured there were universities there was teaching there was learning there was art there was culture there was very very high culture we're at the high middle ages now with gothic cathedrals and stuff like this so you can't say this hurts you know you had the guilds you had you had laboring men living civilized lives where a laboring man could with an, a shockingly low amount of days that he was required to work could support his family. You had, you had social stability. Now I'm not saying you had the best healthcare system in the world. I mean, they didn't have a lot of the modern, uh, um, advantages that we have today. Of course yes. not. Hygiene might've been lacking just a bit. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, but, but there was a civilization. It was a high civilization and there was, there was, and, and, and the high middle ages, as John Horvat argues in his book, was a time of incredible scientific, mechanical, uh, technological progress. Um, so th we're not talking about any of that stuff being impeded because of the church. In fact, the church was largely the patron of these things. 
So <clears throat> fast forward, um, the, I guess the better part of a century, and you have Louis, Louis's gr uh, grandson, Louis the Ninth, the Saint. You have his grandson. Um, his grandson is a loser. Uh, uh, the, the, there's no other way of, of saying it. Well, I guess there are other ways of saying it, but this is the quickest. He was a, he was a problem child. He was very proud, um, <clears throat> very ambitious. And he got in a power struggle with Urban the uh, with uh, rather Pope Boniface the Eighth, and that power struggle that he got in with Boniface the Eighth was such that he refused to, to take Boniface the Eighth's uh, uh, guidance in anything, and um, he, this is the man who who stole the lands of the Knights Templar. Okay, now brother, can I can I interject a question? Sure. So is this then what causes or what impels Boniface the Eighth to write the Unum Sanctum Bull? Yeah, it took a while. Okay. But there was there was a years long protracted controversy between Boniface the Eighth and Philip the Fourth. Um, there was another document that that Boniface had written first, and that was spurned. Uh, Philip got excommunicated. The excommunication got lifted. There, there was a lot of backs and forths and attempts at diplomacy and things like this. Um, but what, but what Philip, Philip was was basically doing some of the same things that that Henry would would eventually do in England. He was confiscating church property. He he was acting as if uh, he every, the, the Catholic Church in his realm was subject to him. Uh, and th this this is a problem that would become would only increase. It would increase in the, among the Germans. The, Ho the House of Hohenstaufen would do the same kind of thing. You would have you would have um, th this modern spirit of Christian Catholic monarchs wrestling with the Pope and saying, "No, you don't have authority in my realm." And the Pope said, well, I'm actually the father of Christendom, and I have authority. I wield, I wield the spiritual sword. You wield uh, the sword of the state. But the Pope has authority over both swords. And it, it's a complicated doctrine, the, 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 the doctrine of the two swords, as it was articulated by Boniface VIII. It's, a, it's got complicated contours to it anyway. But it doesn't say that the state is subject to the church. It doesn't say that so plainly. In other words, the king didn't have to get the permission of the pope to rule his realm. It, he ruled his realm by right. He had, a, he had a right to rule that realm. But when it touched upon certain moral matters, when it touched upon things that, that touch upon God's law, there's a, there's a shared interest between the church and the state. And at that point, the church is higher and can intervene. So... For instance, I give the example constantly of marriage. Both the church and the state have an interest in marriage. The church, the state has an interest in marriage because it not not an interest in defining it, <laughs> but has an interest in protecting it because it is that primordial society that's anterior to the state. It comes before the state, and whether the state likes it or not, the family's more important. The family precedes it, and if the family falls apart, the society falls apart. So a, 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 a civilization that's got some degree of sense will want to protect the family. Uh, so that's an interest of the state. The interest of the church, of course, is that marriage is a sacrament and it must be safeguarded. 
And therefore, if people want to divorce and put away their wife and marry another and so forth, that's adultery and that's forbidden. And that's a scandal if it should be done by a, a person of high position. And, and the church has, does have some say-so about this. But, but can only, as Brother Francis said, the, in the battle between church and state, the powers are very peculiarly aligned. All the, all the material power is in the hands of the state and all the spiritual power is in the hands of the church. So that when a, when a pope seems bested by a monarch, he can't send in an army or something. What can he do? Uh, he can slap an interdict on the realm uh, he can, he, or he can excommunicate. These are the things that he has uh, the authority to do. Okay. And this is this is called using the spiritual sword, um, and and I think some popes were perhaps a little too trigger happy <laughs> with it, to to mix a metaphor here, spiritual sword and trigger happy, but that they were a little too maybe hilt happy um, with wielding the spiritual sword, but um, but be that as it may, they still had that authority. So what happens is there's this tremendous showdown between. Um, between Francis the the, the uh, between rather Philip the Fair of of France, Philip the Fourth, and and Pope Boniface, and it ends in a tragedy, when some no, no, a man named Nogaret and some other um, henchmen of of uh, Philip go to where the Pope is staying at the time, which is in in the Italian city of of Anagni. And they manhandled the then elderly pope. They basically slapped him around, sort of did a mob mob thing, and and um, he ended up dying only, only days later. Now the the citizens of Anagni rose up in defense of the pope, and and fought physically fought uh, Philip's henchmen. Um, so they 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 protected the pope, but it was after a lot of the damage was done, and the and the pope. Was never the same, and 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 just a few days later, he died from the shock uh, of of the incident. So um, th this was a great tragedy, and and Brother Francis quotes Sister Catherine Goddard Clark saying, "A new spirit entered the world with the outrage of Ananyi. They they called it they they this 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 manhandling by the by the by the henchmen of Philip of France, Philip the Fourth." Uh, of Boniface VIII is called the outrage at Anagni. And um, lots of people were troubled by it. Dante, interestingly enough, who for his own reasons did not like Boniface VIII, speaks extremely eloquently about um, the, the fleur-de-lis entering into Anagni. And, and it, this is in a poem, keep in mind. And he's, and he's talking about the horrors of what happened at the outrage at Anani. So even he, who for political reasons did not like Boniface, Dante, did not like Boniface, he, as a poet in his greatest work, protests the outrage uh, uh, perpetrated by the French king. So it was at this point that a new spirit entered the world. This is not the spirit of Louis the, Louis the Ninth, who went on crusade at the behest of the Pope, <laughs> who, who wanted to do things to extend Christendom and to convert the infidel and to, to make the church and the state prosper. Now you have somebody who says, no, what's important is what's good for France and what's good for France is what's good for me, and I don't give a darn about the rights of the church. And ultimately, what did you have? You had a little dress rehearsal for what would happen later with Henry the Henry VIII. What did Henry VIII do when he broke with the church 
uh, he stole monastic property. As soon as he stole monastic property, charity uh, administrations uh, ground to a halt. You had monasteries, you had nunneries where the monks or the nuns took care of the insane, for instance. You, you had uh, uh, the homeless being cared for. You had the, the poor sick being cared for. This industry of charity, which was sponsored by the monasteries, dried up in England. And the, the, the horrible, filthy, uh, uh, uber-capitalist, you know, anarcho-capitalist um, England of, of the 19th century, by the time you get that far away, uh, that Dickens writes about in his books— with street urchins and lots of poverty and, and, and you know, mass capitalist industrialists taking advantage of the poor and paying them, you know, wages that they can't survive on. Uh, those are the conditions that ultimately came. So in other words, historically, when there is that right balance and that right order between church and state, not one being totally subject to the other, but a cooperation between the two and a recognition of the superior, spiritual superior of the church. Um, this is for the benefit of the national life and of the prosperity of the realm. It's not uh, for its backwardness. It doesn't contribute it to, to its to its to its evil. You know, keep, keeping in mind too that educational institutions that made Europe were in the hands of the church. Uh, certainly in the beginning, all of them were Catholic institutions. And frequently, yes, they were endowed by the, the, the monarchs. So there was this tremendous cooperation. At, from the time of Boniface VIII, from the time of, uh, excuse me, Philip the Fair, you, this starts to die down. And by the way, Philip didn't confiscate all the monasteries, but he did something like it. He suppressed the, 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 um, the, the, night, the uh, Teutonic Knights. And when he did this, he, he accused them of, of all kinds of horrible crimes, of, of, uh, of Satanism, of sodomy, uh, and, and such things. And um, some of them confessed under torture. Uh, one of them later said, no, that was a false confession. I betrayed my order when I made that confession. It's not true. And they tortured him to death at that point. Is this is all not the doings of Phil— these are not nice men. Not nice people at all. Not at all. This is this is all. By the way, in the, in the, you know when they, I said the Teutonic Knights, I messed up. Um, what is it? What is it? The um, not the Knights of Malta. Come on, Knights of Saint John. No, that's the same as the Knights of Malta. Um, the, one of the great one of the greatest knight uh, orders of knights, orders of historical orders of order of knights, and it's just slipping. Not the mercenarians. Um, What's that? The Mercedarians? No, no, they weren't knights. That was a, that was a religious order. Knights that was a ransoming order. order. Right, right. But of the Templars, thanks, Dwight. The Knights Templar. Wow, it just it evaporated from my my brain. I just assumed it couldn't be Knights Templar. That's too easy. No, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, it was just it was just a you know a, 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 a lapsus memoriae here. So the Knights Templar um, were accused. And, they, and there was a trial of the Knights Templar all over Europe. They were tried. I mean, the, 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 the Pope took the accusations seriously. The bishops took the accusations seriously, seriously. Monarchs took the accusations seriously. And there were trials and there were inquiries made all over Europe of all the— keep in mind, these, these orders of knights, some of them were national, but some of them, like the Knights of Malta, like the Knights, of, like the knights Templar, 
were international. So they had brothers from all different countries. And uh, the only country where the Knights were accused and, and, and found guilty was France. All the other countries of Christendom where they were accused, they were, they, they were vindicated. So what happened was all the land was taken from them. And guess who got it? The monarch. The monarch. So he didn't do quite what, what, what Henry, Henry did. He wouldn't have dreamed of it. I mean, there would have been a popular uprising of Christian people against him at that point. But what did, what did happen uh, was he, was, uh, uh, he, he, he could at least get away with stealing this land from the Templars. And they had a lot of land because people donated a lot to the Templars because of the good work they did. Um, uh, and keeping in mind that most of the Templars themselves were well, they all had to be wealthy because they were all knights <laughs> to enter. <clears throat> and therefore, they, they, when they entered, they endowed the order with their properties. So they had massive amounts of property, um, especially in France. So this man lusted after their property, got it, um, and then, but of course he had to do it under the auspices of, well, they're evil, they were engaged in, you know, occult practices and sodomy. They were actually accused of being sodomites. Um, that's back in the day when that was an accusation. <laughs> now this is around uh, the time, too, of uh, St. Peter Damien, right? Um, Not exactly no, well, the time, because his day's coming up on the twenty third. He was ten eighty four, I want to say somewhere. Okay, yeah. So he would have been he would have been before this. Okay, so before. Not too, not too. F f f so well, well, he would have been a couple hundred years before, actually. Before f he'd have been closer to Philip the first, but when Philip the fourth rolls around, you're talking about two hundred years later. Now, brother, what do you what do you think? Uh, uh, and you're listening to the apologetics course here live on the Crusade Channel. Uh, featuring King Size Truth from uh, Radio Size Speakers. We're here every Wednesday night, and immediately following this program is a brand new, never before heard, the world premiere debut episode of Reconquest, Brother Andre Marie's Reconquest. This one is Jesus, uh, how Jesus can be your friend. Is that? I know. I called it on the friendship of Jesus Christ. On the friendship of Jesus Christ, brother. Yeah. What do you think that what, what, what Brother Francis might say to someone that was listening to, to this right now, and somebody you know got in the chat room or chimed and it went. So you want me to believe this is well, one true faith, one true religion, and uh, this uh, uh, this supremacy and this unity and all that? But you keep describing all these things, <laughs> these men who openly defied the uh, uh, the church that was producing all this goodness. What do you, what do you, just as uh, for us going out into the world, someone might ask us this question. What do you think brother would say to that? You mean saying, well, it's all fake because there were internal conflicts? You we're know, saying like, there's a lot of conflicts in this uh, supposedly holy entity of yours. That's what I mean. Oh, well, I mean, you know, that's what I like to call the argument from corruption. And of course, this is something that, um, uh, of course, this is something that's that's valid. And it, and it is a scandal. It absolutely is a scandal. Um, I, I think our Lord, I mean, but if you, if you look at Holy Scripture, I mean, it, it, put it this way, if it's a Christian saying this, if it's mm -hmm. a Protestant, if it's a somebody who identifies as a Christian making this objection, mm -hmm. then... The, the the rejoinder is, well, I mean, good Lord, read St. Paul's epistles. He wrote to the Corinthians and said, look, you got this guy who's living among you who's sleeping with his father's wife. Um, 
And St. Paul excommunicated the guy in the first epistle to the Corinthians, told him what a scandal this was. And in the second epistle, he tells him, well, good job, you threw, you, you threw him out. And he did penance, and then you accepted him back in. Um, we have the example of Judas, I mean, <laughs> in, the, in the 12. Um, you, you had, in the early church, you had Ananias and Sapphira. Um, I mean, could you see the, you know, the headlines of the Jerusalem Post in that day? You know, uh, uh, leader of new sect kills couple for uh, filching on donation. Um, you know, this is a huge event. I don't, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts these people pledged money to the apostles, and when they held back uh, from their donation, St. Peter confronts them, and each one of them dies when St. Peter confronts them. <laughs> so you did have scandals. You had sin. You had—and uh, this is during the fervor of the apostolic era. And there's every, in every Christian age, you have saints alongside sinners. No question. <laughs> it is what's called the human condition. Have you ever heard um, Archbishop Fulton Sheen's little— uh, retreat dissertation on Judas? Um, a little. I have heard some things he said about Judas. I don't know if I heard what, you, what, you're, what you're averting to. Well, you, you mentioned Judas Iscariot, and um, he said no one really knows where the name Iscariot comes from, but we think it means dagger, like stab in the back. Um, but the, his principal point was that Judas didn't just bail the night of, that Judas was planning this. And if you read the Gospels carefully, uh, Judas was ready to bolt after this, after the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount when our Lord uh, failed to, to own up to what everyone, many Jews thought the Messiah was going to do, which was deliver them from the Romans, make them, uh, make them into the greatest nation, uh, the greatest nation and greatest government on earth. And, of course, he starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth. So... Uh, uh, Bishop Sheen says that, well, this is when Judas began, and he, he actually quotes him, and, and, you know, he quotes him when uh, <clears throat> when he scolded our Lord, and then he translated it into uh, into modern, how you might say it in modern language, when his feet were being washed or being anointed with oil by Martha. Uh, it, it was interesting. It, it just, you mentioned it, and I thought I would throw it in. Yeah, well, I mean, some some say that Judas is the, Judas's real internal break with our Lord happened at the Eucharistic discourse because he refused to believe. Yeah, that well, what that's our, what, full, that's what, what our Lord said about 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 eating his body and drinking his blood. Uh, well, Sheen said that too, so that was all in it, brother. We have uh, about six minutes left. I wanted to give you a chance to just talk me or promote just a little bit about tonight's episode number one sixteen of Reconquest. Okay, episode one sixty. Oh, okay. It's, so, so it's called on the friendship of Jesus Christ, and and I ask a provocative question: Is Jesus really our friend? And I actually spend the whole first part talking about um, the hymn, the popular Protestant hymn, "What a Friend We Have in Jesus." And I read the words to it, um, because as I was contemplating the subject, that, that hymn kept coming into my head. <laughs> um, and so I talked a little bit about it, and then I basically say, you know, the sentiments, however hokey you might think the hymn is, however kitsch or whatever, stylistically you might think it is, the, the words are essentially correct. There's nothing an Orthodox Catholic could possibly object to in the words of this hymn. And I took the words that our, our Lord himself said about divine friendship, and then I spend time actually reading from a theology book on how friendship is one of the effects of sanctifying grace. That when we have sanctifying grace in our soul, it makes us friends of God, but not because, but, but, but it depends upon what Jesus Christ did. He, he, 
two things had to happen. There had to be a condescension on the part of God so that he could come down to our level. But he, there also had to be an elevation of man. And that's exactly what grace does. It elevates us to a, to a new state so that we, we partake, as St. Saint, Saint Peter says, of the divine nature. So if we partake of the divine nature, we're, we're elevated up. So there's a condescension from God that takes place in the Incarnation. There's an elevation of man that takes place by grace, which was merited by Christ on the cross. And, and th- at that point, truly, we can be friends of God. So that, anyway, it's a, it's a very doctrinal theme, actually. It's not sentimental. It's based entirely on dogmatic truth. But once you have that truth firmly established, then you live it. You live it in the life of prayer and in, the mor- and in your moral and interior life. Very, uh, uh, very interesting. I'm looking forward uh, to listening, uh, li- listening to it. Um, uh, so we've got about uh, f- three minutes left uh, to wrap up. All right. Um, so actually, w- one thing I can say, just since we have only three minutes, fast-forwarding, there were times when, the, we talked about this this morning, there were times when the Pope acted as mediator between Christian states. I t- told you about that treaty that, that was between um, France, uh, between rather Spain and Portugal um, during the time of, ex- of their explorations, dur- dur- during the time when they both became great maritime powers. So the, the Pope of the day averted a crisis between those two nations. I talked about John Paul II. Uh, intervening as a mediator between the two majority Catholic nations of Argentina and Chile when they had a dispute. Okay. Um, but look at what happens when the Pope's civil, the, when the Pope's interest in civil affairs gets ignored. Pope uh, Benedict the Fifteenth tried to get the heads of the European nations, the belligerents, together to make peace. It didn't happen. It didn't happen, and they ignored him. They they spurned him. He wanted peace, just as um, Emperor Karl wanted peace, but they didn't want it. The Freemasons who wanted to remap Europe absolutely did not want the involvement in the Pope. They couldn't take the 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 uh, the, the union of throne and altar that still existed uh, in in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they wanted it destroyed. So did our President Wilson. Um, so th- there were, and, and then later on, Pius XII gets shunned and ignored during World War II. So the, the, as the modern state grows and becomes more belligerent and more assertive of its own rights and Christendom wanes and the authority of the Pope wanes, you get w- more widespread, much more violent, much bloodier wars. So the argument that the church somehow impedes social progress is nonsense. When the Pope, yeah, there were times of conflict between the Popes and the Kings. Obviously, that's the human condition. But you're talking about a general order of things. And when the general order of things was such that there was a hegemony in Christian lands and they understood the the, the spiritual authority of the Pope in temporal affairs, there was more of a chance of peace. And now, what do we see? Constant warfare. Never-ending war. War never yeah. ends. There is there there is no peace. <laughs> there peace. is none, and and because now it would be bad for profits. Now it's all pure profit margin. At, at least at one time it was the, some ideal of power or something, but now it's just it's m- mostly money. 
So you get you get so so they ignored Benedict Benedict the Fifteenth. In fact, John Paul II and and uh, and Benedict the Sixteenth were both ignored by our heads of state in the two respective Iraq wars. Remember, both John Paul II and Benedict the Sixteenth said that these this is not a just war, but they got ignored. Turns out they were right. Turns out the cataclysms that other people predicted happened. So maybe if maybe if there was responsible and I you know I don't think these are the best popes in history John Paul II and and Benedict XVI, I I mean I have problems with both of them, but that aside, if they had been heeded, there wouldn't have been atrocities such as we saw in Iraq. They understood they at least understood that this, these wars were not necessary. It's a. Uh, uh, uh... Apologetic show here on the Crusade Channel, featuring King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers, uh, brother. We uh, we have just under a uh, uh, a minute to go now, so next week we'll do Apologetics number six, and uh, we'll look forward to doing that. And then, uh, uh, well, we'll be back here uh, next week. And remember that all of these episodes are available for download on my website. Go to mikechurch.com, and you'll find them. Right there on the front page of the site, number four is up, and they're all part of an RSS feed, too, as well. Brother, thanks for the show tonight. We shall see you again next week. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. We'll see you next week. God bless everybody. All right, brother. I had a uh, I had a little automation uh, automation glitch there, uh, which is why you heard me kind of hesitate because we were cut off for about three seconds, but uh, I rescued it. Uh, your episode is in, I believe. Yeah, one sixteen is going to play. So you're all good there. Right. Uh, I'm going to go make sure <laughs> that you're all good there. Um, and it's been a really long day, so I'm going to roll. But did you see that Father Longenecker basically canonized Billy Graham? I, You know, one of the last things I did towards the end of my day today uh, before I went to Vespers was reading about Billy Graham. And, the, and, and uh, yeah, I started to read him. This makes me sick. This makes me sick. This has been going on. This is the problem. I mean, with the complete indifferentism. Well, and it... Um, it <laughs> It just it boggles the mind. I, I mean, the, he he said, "Well done, uh, true servant of uh, uh, of God." Uh, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, good and good, good and faithful servant. You're you're at the final altar, or or, or, or something about the final altar. I'm going, final altar. How about judgment? Yeah, even, even though you didn't believe in the altar uh, in this life, now you're in the, Yeah, it, this is this is complete indifferentism. It's just it's it's a tragedy. I mean, um, it, it really is a tragedy that 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 Catholics thought like. And he's an, he's a convert from evangelical Christianity. And instead of saying, you know, gee, I hope Billy Graham, you know, slipped in at the last minute or something. He had to insist that uh, you know, regardless of his of his uh, false version of Christianity or not, he made it because he brought so many people to Christ. No, Billy Graham couldn't bring people to Christ. He 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 had the wrong Christ. <laughs> well, to, I mean, to, to say well done. <laughs> Anyways, I uh, I just wondering if you saw it. Um, 
Let me go make sure that your episode gets in the queue properly. And uh, when are you going to send me my commercial? Oh, I'm sorry, Mike. I, 